Good morning. And yes, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father, uh, we thank you again for the opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will enlighten us, draw us together, transform us into a unity of believers that love as you love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Today, lesson four in the quarterly Daniel, and the title is From Furnace to Palace. And as you hear the title, it immediately draws our mind, furnace to palace, draws our mind um, to uh, Daniel's three friends uh, and uh, their story. And it reminds us that not only does the Bible teach real historical people who did real historical stuff, but those stories are there to be object lessons to larger realities. And I think this is one of those places we can not only hear the historical account of what really happened to these three people in the fiery furnace and, and then, of course, up to the palace, but, but it's an object lesson to the great controversy. For instance, these men were captives in a land that was hostile to God. We are captives in a world that's hostile to God. These men were faced with the choice to worship the gods of Babylon or to stay faithful to the God of heaven. Are we faced with choices every day to worship the gods of this world or to stay loyal to the God of heaven, the, the God who created the heavens and the earth? These men were thrown into the fire, but Jesus walked with them, and the only thing that burned away were the ropes that bound them, the ties that bind. Even their clothing did not smell of fire. We will be thrown into fiery trials, and Jesus will be there with us to burn away our fears, insecurities, doubts, destructive habits, the things that bind us, so that we may be purified and ready to stand in his presence. Do you see the beautiful object lesson in the story? Yeah. And then Revelation reads, Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover the shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Isaiah 55.1 reads, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The water in the Isaiah text is symbolic of the water of life, which cleanses and restores trust in God. It's the pure truth of God that sets our minds free and cleanses our minds from the lies of Satan. It also represents the love of God, which is pure and frees us from fear. The wine is symbolic of the blood, which is symbolic of the life of Christ, the perfect character he developed, that we become partakers of the divine nature. The milk is the milk of truth, that as newborns in Christ we take the milk, but we're to grow up and then partake the meat and stop living on the milk, which is the flesh Thus you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. These are metaphors about the truth about that Christ reveals and then the character of Christ we receive. But notice that both texts, the Revelation text and the Isaiah text, said we are to buy these things. 
We're to buy them, but without money. Hmm, what does that mean? If you think about something you buy, do you have a different experience when you buy something than when it's given to you? Is, can we do any work or bring anything of value that can actually purchase salvation? Can we do that? No, so this isn't that kind of buying. Our salvation is achieved by Jesus free, and it's offered to us freely, yet even though it's offered to us freely, we're still told to come and buy it. When you buy something of value to you, whether it be a car or a house, do you invest time and energy researching, examining, studying the various possibilities, the evidences, the facts, in order to choose what you want to buy? Do you do that? Do you also, when you buy something, only research and study and examine, do you have a desire to obtain Do you commit yourself to the possession of the object? We are to buy in the sense that we are to study, to understand, to examine, to pursue, to seek with all our hearts. Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. Him who knocks and the door will be opened. Or Jeremiah 29.13. And ye shall seek me... And find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Or Matthew thirteen forty four and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had and bought it. Notice this purchase object metaphor. So, I think first we have to have a hard attitude. We want to obtain salvation. We actually have to spend time finding the evidences and truths that Jesus has left for us and revealed to us. We have to study and discern that. But even doing all that, we must still buy it. We buy it with the barter system. You cannot possess the robe of righteousness as long as you hold on to the filthy rags of your own development. So, it's an exchange purchase. We must use or spend or exchange that which is ours that we value the most. And I promise everyone in here, what you value the most that is yours is not your clothing. It's not your house. It's not your car. It's your life. And don't think about your children because they're not yours in the sense that we're talking about here. They have their own identity and individuality and their life is not yours to give away. Because I know many of you love your children more than yourself and that's healthy and mature, but they're not yours to exchange. What's yours to exchange, the thing you value most is your own life. And we must exchange our sinful life for his sinless life. 
Our corrupt character for his pure character. Our terminal condition, dead and trespassing, dying, terminal condition for his eternal life. Our guilt and shame for his purity and holiness. Our hearts of stone for his heart of flesh. It is through the fire of life's difficulties and problems that we face our own weaknesses, sinfulness, fears, insecurities, ugliness of character, and we seek God with all our hearts and say to him, take away my heart of sin, take away my desire for the things of this world, take away my fear, insecurity, doubts, selfishness, and write in me your design law of love. A real knowledge of you. Give me a heart and a right, a new heart and right spirit that I might partake of your character and be renewed in the spirit of truth and love. Wash me with the waters of truth. Fill me with the love of and life of Christ and burn away the old defects so that I may stand clean, pure, and perfected in your presence, O Lord. Isn't that the, the, the prayer? Do you see the beautiful metaphor of going in the fire and burning away just the ties that bind? The first paragraph in our lesson describes how these three worthies made a stand for truth and for God. We all know that, yes? But have you considered how, when, and why they made a public stand? In both the issue of the food choices and the question of bowing to the idol, did these men go out seeking to make a public statement. Were they carrying signs, marching through Babylon, protesting pagan religious practices? Were they standing on street corners, holding out tracks? Were they putting up billboards, protesting the sinfulness of the Babylonian gods and people? Were they holding public meetings to teach the truth about the Hebrew God? Just think about that for a minute. No bumper stickers? No bumper stickers. <laughs> or, or did they take public stands when they were put in positions in which external pressure was brought to bear to get them to try and choose a corrupt pathway in governance of self? Do we make the most effective witness for God's kingdom by standing on a street corner calling out people's sins or putting up billboards calling out what we believe are other people's sins? Do we make the most effective witness in doing that? No. What are the three methods of Satan that were used against the three worthies to try to get them to compromise their faith? And these three methods are used over and over, and I want you to see them. Because while the specific temptations we all face may differ in this precise type of temptation, the method Satan presents temptations through are always the same. There's three, three methods. I want to unpack these three methods. First method, deceit. Some misrepresentation, outright lies, subtle distortion, uh, inf inferences, uh, but some type of deceit to get you to believe something that's not true. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. First method of Satan is Deceit, and of course in, Ad in Eden it was deceit about God. Did God really say lies about God? But if deceit doesn't work, or 
Deceit is often coupled with the second, inducement. Inducement. Some type of payoff, a reward, a bribe, the positive reinforcement, the proverbial carrot. When the issue of food was presented, they not only had the deceptions of all the Babylonian God concepts being presented to them, but they were offered implicitly or explicitly advancement in the society, positions of power, positions of wealth. Weren't they awful coupled with what was happening to them? There was an inducement, a payoff potentially. These first two methods were used on Eve in Eden. Deceit and a payoff. You will gain knowledge. You will gain power. You will be advanced. Deceit and a payoff. The third method I'm about to show you was not used on Adam and Eve, and Satan couldn't bring it to bear until after the fall. And the third method is coercion, threat, infliction of some harm, injury, pain, suffering, whether it's economic, loss of power, loss of position, humiliation, ultimate threat of physical well-being, torture, and death. He couldn't bring that to Adam and Eve in Eden. But since the fall, these three methods are used. Deceit, inducement, coercion. Now consider how Jesus was tempted of the devil. Went out in the wilderness, tempted of the devil. First temptation was deceit. Angel of light presents himself, misquoting scripture, trying to deceive. Second temptation was these were inducements. All the things on the earth I will give to you. Payoff, if you just simply worship me. And Jesus did not give in to deceit, did not give in to inducement, and then, over the course of the next few years, ultimately, what did Satan bring to bear in Jesus' life? Coercion. Torture and crucifixion. That's what he brought to bear. Now notice, Jesus had to bear temptation. Adam and Eve did not have to bear Adam and Eve had to face deception and the temptation of inducement. But they had no coercive pressures brought to bear. Jesus had deception, inducements, and coercive pressures brought to bear. He had a level of temptation that Adam and Eve never had to face. Yes? Could, could we argue that Adam may have actually suffered some sort of coercive pressure of the loss of his wife and the fear of the loss of Eve? Now you're separating Eve's temptation from Adam's temptation. So Eve, we would say, no coercion. Right. Okay. So what was the core? So the coercion being, who coerced him? What was the threat? Was it an implicit or explicit? An external threat or a? It was implicit that if if I don't listen to my wife and take the fruit and eat it, she will be lost. I will be alone. I don't see that as coercion. I, I see that as more of another deception. Okay. He was deceived into believing that God couldn't fix the problem for him, which incited an apprehension of fear and insecurity uh, of the threat of potential loss. But there wasn't an external element threatening loss. I don't think Eve was saying, if, see, do we see the temptation of Eve to Adam as, if you don't eat this fruit, Adam, I'm never going to speak to you again. In fact, I'm going in the other room and you're getting your own bedroom, Adam. Okay. There wasn't coercive pressure brought, was there? Well, scripture's silent on that, but uh, I, I, it's not. The way it's presented in all the Bible commentaries I see, it was more along the inducement line. Look, I've eaten it. I'm not harmful. I feel better. I'm more invigorated. It'll help you grow too. So it seems more of a promise of a better outcome 
Now, the, the, we do have insights to suggest that he wasn't deceived with the question of better outcome, that he understood it wasn't a better outcome. He understood that she'd been deceived. He understood they were likely going to die. So his deception was not trusting God to actually be able to fix this problem. Okay. That, that's kind of how I see it. Yes. Do you think that he, if he had fallen to deception, if he didn't need to go to coercion because they got, he got him before coercion, would he have moved to coercion? Uh, no, he couldn't move to coercion in Eden. There, there was because they because they had a protect because they were innocent. He could not bring threats to bear upon them. He didn't have the power. God had a restraining hand. He could actually only approach them at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The rest of the planet they were free from him. So I don't see any avenue for him to coerce or threaten them uh, unless it's just a verbal threat at the at the. If you don't do this, I'm going to jump off this tree and beat you up. I mean, he, he could have verbally said that, but I don't think there was any actual avenue for him to follow through on that. Yeah. So Jesus, big point though. Jesus was tempted in every way like we fallen human beings are, but he was tempted on a level and an order of temptation that Adam never faced. Does everybody see that? Yeah. All right, in the Dark Ages, notice these methods were used. Lots of lies, lots of deception, lots of misunderstanding, lots of distortions about God being taught in Christianity, lots of inducements of all kinds, indulgences and buying salvation with money. And uh, in fact, if you do these rituals, then you get to purchase your salvation by doing all this kind of stuff. So lots of inducements were being used. And of course, coercion, torture, execution, um, burning at the stake, and so forth. What about in our day? Let's look at our day today, methods that are used. Is deceit being used in Christianity today? Lots of lies about God still infecting the Christian church when we teach God runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. It must be paid off by the blood of a human sacrifice. If you, don't, if you don't present God the blood of a human sacrifice, then he'll use his power to kill you. This is paganism raw and pure, and it's the core message of most of Christianity. And it's simply not true. Inducement. Money, power, position, reward, recognition. Just agree to the world's view of things and you get to advance in some way. Um, and you see that there is reward for embracing the worldly view of God and how he operates. What about coercion? No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. If we want to keep our position in leadership, in schools, in universities, in government, we can't advance the cause of creation. We must collude with the lie of evolutionary origins, godless origins. If you promote that view, you'll lose your, your status, your job, your positions. What about you must worship a dictator god who inflicts punishment? Or else you might lose your position in a religious organization, a, in a church institution. Are people actually free? What about what the Bible teaches is ultimately going to have a conglomeration of religious and political powers that coerce conscience, and you can't really buy or sell unless you participate in the system. We call that, by the way, economic sanctions. That's what it is, economic sanctions. We, this, this, this power uses its economic and political and even military powers to stop you from trading, from buying, from selling. How many of you believe it's righteous? We're doing it right now all around the world. Who leads the world in economic sanctions? The United States. Sunday, 
The first paragraph points out that Nebuchadnezzar was not satisfied being the head of gold and didn't want his uh, kingdom to end, so he builds the tower, the, uh, the entire statue of gold. And the second paragraph states, the attitude of pride calls to mind the builders of the Tower of Babel, uh, who in their arrogance attempt to challenge God himself. No less arrogant is Nebuchadnezzar here. And it seems very clear that the king struggled with pride and arrogance, doesn't it? He struggled with pride and arrogance. The question I have for you, though, was, was it his fault? Was it his fault that he struggled with pride and arrogance? Or was he born in sin, conceived in iniquity, with egocentrism as his core founding principle of his birth? So he starts the world off as Adam and Eve in a sinless perfection and gets tempted into pride and arrogance and chooses to go that route, or he starts the world off fearful, insecure, and self-centered, like the rest of humanity after Adam and Eve's sin. Now, as an infant, think about his upbringing. Think about Nebuchadnezzar's child-rearing in Babylon. As heir to the throne, would it be easy for him to gain the knowledge of the true God in the Babylonian system? Would, Would what he was taught as a child teach him that all human beings are created equal and he is no better than any other human being? Or would he be taught some aspect of the divine right of rulers and how he is somehow and specially blessed of the gods? Now, many parents in this room If you teach your children something along those lines, should we blame the child? Do you think Nebuchadnezzar really had any defense against growing up self-centered, arrogant, and prideful? And then, how did life reinforce his worldview? Did he actually become the ruler of Babylon? Did he take his armies and organize them and go out and conquer all the nations around him? Did he build the greatest city of the world had ever known at that time? Did life experience actually refute his, pre- his premises and assumptions, or did they reinforce them? I find you know, so, so, yes, he was full of pride and arrogance. Do we have grace to see, though, that he really had, up to a certain point in time, hadn't had many opportunities to disabuse himself of that worldview? And then we see something happens. Romans 2, Romans 1 and 2, imply that we all have God's Spirit working in our lives, throughout our lives. There are strong influences, there's no doubt. But... I think we do God a disservice if we don't say that he is constantly, from the time we're born, trying to move us to him. Thank you for that, very much. Did anyone hear me say that God was not working to reach Nebuchadnezzar his entire life? Let's walk through some assumptions and premises we have about this battle between good and evil. After Adam and Eve sinned, if Jesus doesn't come to earth as our Messiah, but the Holy Spirit is poured out, Can we be saved? Why not? God is pouring his spirit out to enlighten, to inspire, to draw, to woo, to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, to give us a desire for something better. He's certainly doing these things. Why can't we be saved? We don't have an example of what it would look like. So we just need an example. We need need just a model, someone to model after. We need the cure. Oh, we need a remedy. We need a cure. What is the remedy and the cure that we need that we can't produce? Totally self-sacrificing God. She says we need a totally self-sacrificing God. 
If Jesus doesn't come to earth, or in fact, up until he does come to earth, at the time of the fall, is God self-sacrificing, totally self-sacrificing? He always was. So then we had a totally self-sacrificing God. Why can't we already have that? Why can't we be saved without Jesus? Did Jesus dying cause God to become a totally self-sacrificing God? No. So he was already that. So yes, we do need a self-sacrifice, but we already have that. We've got that total self-sacrificing God. What's the problem? We need the lies dispelled and a new character. Okay, oh, there she's. We need the lies dispelled that keep us from trusting or knowing this totally life eternal. They might know you the only truth. So God is that totally self-sacrificing. But because of Satan's power, Hebrews 2.14, Christ took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Life eternal, John 73, they might know you the only true God and Jesus Christ from now sent. This is life eternal. Satan's power of death the lies. He's the father of lies. He tells that we keep us from knowing God. We don't know God. If we don't know God, we don't trust God. If we don't trust God, we aren't reconciled to God. We're alienated from God. If we don't not reconciled to God, we don't open the heart to God. If we don't open the heart to God, we don't receive the Spirit of God working to restore and recreate. But what's the Spirit of God taking in order to restore human beings to godly perfection? Paul says, it's no longer I that live, but... Jesus said, it's good for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the Spirit won't come. But when the Spirit comes, he's going to take what's mine and make it known to you. What does Jesus have as a human, as a human, that we don't have? A sinless human character. And thus, that's the remedy. So it says in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, once he's made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Made perfect. Wasn't he always perfect? Perfect? Always sinless. He was always sinless. But Bible perfection is not, not about sinlessness. Adam and Eve were sinless in Eden prior to their sin, but they weren't perfect because perfection requires development of character that cannot be shaken or broken away from its solidity and trust in God. And Adam and Eve, while sinless, were not yet matured or perfect. And Christ was tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. So he faces those issues and he chooses with his humanity, his human brain, to reject the lies, reject the fear, reject the inducement, reject the coercion, and to love perfectly, establishing God's design in humanity. Okay? That happened even in Old Testament times, too. Yeah, so how did it happen in Old Testament times? This is a great question. People get very much confused about these things. Are you suggesting that Enoch, who walks into heaven... Walked into heaven without what Jesus, without the accomplishment of what Jesus did at the cross, or or Elijah who gets translated into heaven, or Moses who gets resurrected and taken to heaven. See, people get confused about that, and the reason they get confused about that is because they struggle with linear time. Linear time. What's linear time? That's what how we live. One moment unfolds after another moment. Time unfolds one second after another, and we exist in linear time. God, though, is the creator of time. He lives in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16. He lives outside time. He's not restrained. All moments in time to him are equal, past, present, and future. He accesses them all simultaneously. Jesus, it says, uh, God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable by whom? And why is it unapproachable? Well, because he's got an electrical force field around him, and anyone who approaches that gets zapped. Is that what that means? No. He's an infinite being. 
Finite beings cannot assimilate infinity. It would consume us, it would destroy us, it would overwhelm us, not as some infliction or some punishment, some some negative acting out of hostility or anger, simply because it's beyond our capacity to process. We can't handle it. So, Zechariah, my thoughts are not like your thoughts, higher than, you know. Right. So, God, we can't enter into infinity, so a member of infinity leaves infinity and enters linear existence. That member of the Godhead is Jesus. He comes and interacts with us on our level, linear existence. And Jesus, after Adam sins, enters humanity and becomes human, surrendering permanently some of his attributes to be in all points in time at the same time. Prior he enters infinity, he can be all points in He is permanently human now. He lives for all eternity future in a linear existence. The Holy Spirit represents his omnipresence now. It's a, you can't imagine the, 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 the stepping down. And thus he achieves for us what we could never achieve. But having achieved it, now think about this. We now have penicillin. And we know what penicillin is. We know how it works, what infections it can cure. Back in the Civil War, they did not have penicillin. People died more of infections than the actual wounds. It was afterwards they got a, you know, a bullet would go through and it would take a piece of cloth and that piece of cloth would get stuck inside the wound and it would fester and cause an infection and they died days later from the infections, not from the, uh, often the trauma itself. If we had a time machine and we weren't restricted to linear time, we could jump back in time, we could actually take penicillin back there and administer it to lots of people. But only if penicillin exists. If it's never been developed and doesn't exist, it doesn't matter if we have a time machine. We can't go back and apply it. God can apply through all human history what Christ achieved, but only if Christ achieved it. If Christ never came and never achieved his victory, God still exists at all points in time, but he has no remedy to apply to Elijah, to Enoch. But because Christ did actually come into linear history and achieve what he achieved, God can take the victories of Christ and apply it in all those who trust him. Did I confuse anybody or is it making more sense? It's awesome, guys. It's incredible, the God we serve. It's really cool. So, so back to the question of King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm just showing you, Nebuchadnezzar, yes, the Holy Spirit is working on Nebuchadnezzar. The Holy Spirit is trying to reach Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar is conditioned from his, his own carnal nature and then reinforced over and over by all of his, his, uh, his, his father, his mother, his priest, his educators, the entire system, how reality works. He's being blessed by the gods. He is expanding his power, his might. I mean, everything is telling him he's better than other people. Until he takes Israel captive. Now new data points begin to enter his worldview. Data points that throw him for a loop. Data points with the the Hebrew worthies are actually healthier, smarter, ten times better than those who do it our way. Huh, that doesn't fit what I've been told. A little thought begins, a little seed is planted. And this is, I want you to understand God's methods. God doesn't coerce. He doesn't give a declaration. Hey, here's the truth. Believe it or else. No. Truth 
presented in love, leaving people free. And he has his three friends come, and Daniel comes, and they give a new data point to, to Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't fit his model, and it takes root, and it begins to, to establish new possibilities. But that's not sufficient to overcome an entire life of reinforced narcissism. So he has another data point, the fiery furnace. Big data point here. A man looks like the son of God. And then he actually now can come to the point and say and affirm there's a God in heaven that knows mysteries and is able to... And yet he still isn't freed from his still arrogant self-centeredness. And so another dream is given to him. Another data point that ultimately results in seven years of insanity and restoration And this brings him to the point to realize what I was taught, my whole worldview, me being better, it's wrong. There's a God in heaven. I want to, I want to follow that God. I want him to be, and he is converted. Do you see how God works? It's profound. It's exciting. So I I put it, and you approach the same idea in multiple ways. Did God foreknow the king's response to the multi-metal vision? He foreknew it. Understand then, God knew exactly the king was going to go out and do this. God knew exactly his three friends are going to stay loyal. God knew exactly he was going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. God knew exactly he was going to stand there in the furnace with him. God saw the plan. He knew what was going to happen, and he loved Nebuchadnezzar. He says, and I'm going to, I'm going to give this dream because this dream is going to cause a cascade. His reaction is going to be arrogant because his pride is going to be tempted. He's going to be reinforced by his people around him. He's going to come up, and he's going to make this statue, and you know what? That's okay. Because my friends are going to be there, and I'll be able to meet that temptation and that arrogance with an intervention that will humble him and put another seed of truth in his heart. It won't, it won't win him yet, because there's a deep battle there going on in his heart, but it's another seed of truth. And then I'm going to give him another dream and another life experience, and that's going to win him. And it's not only going to win him, it's going to then send a proclamation out to the entire Babylonian kingdom about the God of Israel. It's going to be a witness. Do you see the battle back and forth between good and evil being played out? It's really exciting. Monday's lesson. Historical facts about the realities that happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and leads to, uh, again, leads us to the larger realities, the object lesson applications. When we face things and pressures, do we ever face things and pressures to conform to this world? What I want you to realize is that when we face decisions, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'll all be brought to points where we have a decision to make. Do we bow to the pressure or do we stand true to our conscience? We all will face those decisions in life, big or small, don't we? When you're in that point of decision-making, there is a price to pay, and you can't avoid the price. It's just a matter of what price are you going to pay. Satan's plan is to get you to misperceive reality and believe the price that you have to pay or avoid paying is temporal and earthly. So if you don't bow, you might lose position. You might lose money. You might lose power. You might lose human relationships. And not to lose those things of an earthly nature, we are tempted to bow to not lose. But if you do bow to maintain your position, power, money, even human relationships, what do you, what price do you pay? You sear your conscience, you harden your heart, 
you corrupt your character, and you ultimately, if you don't repent, sever your connection with God, and you pay an eternal price. You can't avoid it. If you stay loyal to God, you may pay an earthly price, but you retain your integrity, your dignity, your character, your sense of well-being, and your connection with God, and ultimately, because of that, eternal life. Just recognize, Satan gets people to exchange the eternals for the temporal by deceiving them into not being aware of the eternal. And there's influence to add to that either way. In addition to your own salvation or lack thereof, the influence you have either way is against or for God as well. Today, it says in the second paragraph, today we are bombarded on every side by calls to adopt new lifestyles, new ideologies, to abandon our commitment to the authority of God as expressed in his word and to surrender our allegiance to contemporary successors of Babylonian Empire. What is the basis of God's authority? And what is the basis of the authority of all false gods, including Satan? I want you to understand. Think diagnostically. Discernment. Identify. For instance, does God's authority come from the Bible? No. No, it does not. The Bible is not the source of God's authority. The Bible is a tool inspired by God to reveal to us the knowledge of God, to expose the lies of Satan, to reveal the consequences of rebellion against God. It's a, it's a tool, but it's not the source of God's authority. Unlike the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution, that document is the source of legal authority for this government. The Bible is not the source of God's authority. Everybody, everybody with me on that? The Bible communicates God's authority. So what does God's authority rest upon? Is it power? If we say power, then I have to say, what kind of power? Is it the power of physical might and force? Is this the source of God's authority? I want you to be very clear. No. In fact, physical might and force is the authority for all false gods. It's the source of their authority. Physical might and force. All false gods rest their authority upon the ability to be able to conquer, punish, kill, execute, overpower those who won't follow them. Their authority is in the might of arms in some way. Thus, any place you find in Christianity that God's authority rests upon his physical might and ultimate power to punish sinners in the end and kill his enemies, you've identified Satan's infection in Christianity. That's not how God wins. That's not his power. Yes? Maybe his power is truth and love. So what kind of power? Zechariah. Well stated. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord, and the Spirit is the Spirit of... Truth and love. This is the power of God. Um, and how does the Spirit that works with truth and love? Because lies are destroyed by truth and selfishness is destroyed by love. This is God's power. So Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is the good news about God, his character of truth and love and his methods and his design laws and so forth. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. In the book Desire of Ages, I love this quote. You've heard it before. It's one paragraph, 759. It says, God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth. 
But they did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. The presentation of these principles is the mean to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. I love that quote. Because you cannot win love, you cannot win trust, you cannot win friendship, you cannot win loyalty by threatening to kill people who don't give it to you. You can only win the hearts with truth presented in love, leaving people free. But when people look at the Old Testament, many people see a coercive God. Yes, we're going to come to that in just a moment. Uh, I want uh, a couple of thoughts, and we're going to actually come to an email I received this week that picks up on that point. And that's because they don't differentiate compelling power, compelling, with restraining power. Doctors restrain a psychotic person who is threatening to gouge out their own eyes to protect that person and other people. They are not trying to force them to love them or trust them. They're simply restraining the person from injuring themselves and seeking to restore that person to self-governance. Last word of the Spirit is self-control. There is no attempt to try to get them to love or trust or anything like that. It's only restraining the person from harm. Love does that. Doctors and governments will quarantine people with contagious diseases, not to force love, not to force trust, but to protect and to treat. Governments will imprison people who would injure and exploit others but this restraining power, putting them in timeout, okay, putting them in the penalty box, okay, if you will, that's what prison is, is not designed to force love and trust or friendship. But it's designed to protect not only the innocence in society, but if you understand how sin works, if you stop a person from committing a crime, murdering, raping, whatever, not only have you protected the innocent, you've protected the damage to that person's character, searing their conscience, hardening their heart, wounding themselves. You get that, don't you? So that's restraining power. It's not, it's not compelling love. It's not saying, love me or I'm going to imprison you. No, no, no. It's for the person who's doing crimes, stopping them, and then giving them a timeout. And many people who have done crimes will tell you, because they were taken out of society, because they were put in the penalty box, it gave them time to reflect on their life choices. And many of them have given their hearts to Christ, not because they were being compelled to, but because they were being restrained from destroying themselves and given an opportunity to reflect. God has used power in this way, holding back the principalities and powers of darkness, the four winds of strife, providing a hedge of protection, preventing evil forces from destroying all that God would bless us with. And this is how I see what's happening in the Old Testament. If you don't understand, there's a controversy. After Adam and Eve sinned, humankind cannot be saved without Jesus. Genesis 3, 15, the serpent is being told that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. Messiah's promised. And most of the Old Testament is a, is, a, is a description of this battle being played out. God working to bring the Messiah, Satan working to stop the plan. And at one time in human history, there's only one righteous man left with his family willing to work with God, and God brings a flood. Some people don't like that. They want to make it be more passive. They want to make it be that God simply, you know, let, withdrew his spirit, let the laws of nature take control. It was a passive thing. I, I, I've gone back and forth. I got, I got this email this week. I have 
This is uh, because I wrote a blog on this about three or four weeks ago, and I referred the person to the blog, and so they read the blog, and this is what they said. I've read, fully read your article three times, and in our group, we use your materials and other materials of the proponents of the God's character message. Let's reason together little by little, based on your article on the flood, and see what we can arrive at in common understanding. First question on the flood, and probably Sodom. If God was merely putting people to sleep, why did he make it so painful? such as using flood to drown, fire to roast people alive, including kids, couldn't he have used a less painful means? Does God need to use violence in the most fearful events in the whole universe before he can put people to sleep? Again, why was the flood worldwide and not limited only to the inhabitants of the then world? Why was the flood left, why has the flood left huge devastation of our planet, destabilizing our ecosystem if God had merely to put people to sleep? With, this, with the idea that God's power is destructive, this has led many people to believe that God is the source of death. Aren't they right to conclude it in that way without the idea of the flood uh, and its subsequent consequences of our ecosystem? In other words, they're saying if, if we make God responsible for bringing the flood, then, then God's the source of, of torturing and killing and, and the same thing in Sodom and so forth, and then they're right to conclude God does these things. First off, I want to say I really appreciate this question a lot. I was very thankful I got this, uh, because this question, uh, it's probing, it, it's insightful, it, it gives us opportunity to reflect, to rethink, to reexamine, to dig deeper, to restudy. I love this. This is what we should be doing. Do you want me to ask you how you would answer? You want, want me to walk you through? <laughs> they go, no, just answer it, just answer it. <laughs> you guys are funny. So first, take the points one at a time. First point, the obvious one, the one that just flares out at me is the most easiest, is that um, the question of why would God make this painful, fire roasting people alive? Notice the question introduces an idea that's not in the Bible, and in fact is contrary to the evidence we have. That God roasted people slowly, torturing them. That is not consistent with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible account is that fire was so intense that the entire buildings were, were, were destroyed. This was a vaporization. It would be the experience of being the epicenter of a nuclear bomb as it goes off. It's instantaneous vaporization, no torture, no suffering at all. So the first idea, it reads into a concept that's actually not in the story. So in, in the Sodom story, yes. We have evidence that that is true with Lot's wife. Yes. So she... She was desiccated. Yeah. yeah. She looked and instantly... Yeah. So evidence that this was such a powerful thing, Lot's wife turns to pull her salt, that's called desiccation. Desiccation is when you suddenly suck out all the liquid, all the water. If you suck all the water out of your body, then what's left is a pillar of salt. Okay. That's more like a little pile of minerals, not like... Well, that's what salt is. I know, but yeah. usually people... Yeah, sure. right. A little pile of minerals, yep. So we can look at the, at the Sodom story and we can put that aside and recognize God was not torturing, he was not Sodom. But then what do we do at the flood? Of course, our accounts of that would be this wasn't an instantaneous process. There was rain, there was water, fountains of water breaking loose. This probably took several days at least for the flood to overcome and overwhelm and drown people. Um, this wasn't an instantaneous. There was probably terror, fear, anxiety, uh, and, and a little bit of suffering, drowning. Um, drowning is not a pleasant thing. It's not a long period of suffering. It's actually very, very quick, really, but, it, but it's a moment of terror and dread and anxiety for sure. How do we answer that? Why was it given? Well, first, why was the flood worldwide? Because the problem of sin 
was worldwide, number one. And thus the therapeutic, notice the word I'm using, therapeutic intervention had to be worldwide. And what were the therapeutic interventions? Why was the flood, and I am more convinced after studying that God was active in bringing the flood, not passive, and I'm going to show you why, and so the evidence is for it. It wasn't just killing people. Well, it wasn't killing people at all. If you remember what we talked about before, Bible's definition of death for sin is eternal non-existence. Um, God, that's the human, uh, the human definition of death is what we call death. God's definition is non-existence. This is a sleep death. But what happened to ending of their temporal lives is not the only thing that happened. It reordered the, the world and how it worked. So precious stones and all trust that became buried and other things happened that reworked the world to the advantage of people for longevity. Until that last phrase, I was right with you. It was actually quite, it's quite opposite that. So let's, let's go through the therapeutic interventions. First therapeutic intervention was that it kept open the avenue for Messiah. That was the first therapeutic intervention. There was a last family willing to work with God on earth, and if without Jesus, the whole human race is gone. So God putting people to sleep was not to exact punishment, but to actually save the human species and to bring an end to the problem of sin. But there were other therapeutic interventions. Did God warn through Noah that for, for 120 years a flood was coming? Did the, did the earth know this? The people knew this, knew this warning anyway. Um, did he warn of their sinfulness, their need to repent, their need to give their heart to God? Was this part of the message for 120 years? Yes. yes. How, how did they respond to the message of Noah, the people living at that day? They rejected it. They ridiculed it. They made fun of him. They had their people saying, oh, there's no such thing. We've never seen rain. This can't happen. They denied the message. What would allowing the flood to occur as it did over a period of time, rains, fountain of water breaking up, allow for in those outside the ark? Would it allow time with new evidences for people to go, uh-oh, Maybe Noah was right. In other words, it would allow opportunity for repentance. I'm not saying that anybody repented. I'm saying, would a God of love give every opportunity for every person to repent, even if that opportunity was a brief period of discomfort? If it could lead them to repentance, would he provide that for them? So... Therapeutic intervention number one leaves open the avenue for Messiah. Therapeutic intervention number two, everybody who denied the message for 120 years now has the evidence before them, we were wrong, there is a God in heaven, and maybe some of them repented. You say, well, that's kind of ridiculous. Nobody in those circumstances where their life is on the line. Think about the thief on the cross. Thief on the cross lives his life in rebellion. He's got the message of the gospel. He's brought up in the Jewish culture. He knows the, the gospel. He rejects it. He lives. Uh, but now on the cross, he's dying. He reflects. He gives his heart to the Lord. And I see the people at the flood, many have the opportunity to be like, I say opportunity, I don't know what they took, but they have the opportunity like the thief. Their temporal life is about to be over. The thief's temporal life is about to be over. His repentance didn't give him a new, quote, lease on the temporal life. He doesn't have opportunity to go out and live for God. But because of his repentance, he will now have eternal life. I think God also gave the antediluvians that opportunity. I think he loved them dearly. And he wanted to give them every chance to repent. And the flood was brought to give them opportunity to do so. The difference with Sodom, he already told Abraham, there's not anybody, all these hearts are hardened. Nobody here is going, is, is, is if there's one righteous, two righteous, three righteous, ten, you know, whatever, 50, 40, 30, down, there's not anybody here whose heart's reachable. That's Sodom. Just put him to sleep. 
The flood, they didn't get on the ark. But I think there was an opportunity given to them, and who knows, we might get to heaven and discover there's seven people additional to, to Noah from the antediluvian world that, that died in the flood that are going to be in heaven. Would you then say God had no right to bring that flood? How about this? Second therapeutic intervention. Wendell was, Wendell was, uh, was, uh, was indicating the second therapeutic intervention. What were the factors... People think, think with me now. What were the factors besides humans being sinful that contributed to an entire world hardening against God so quickly after Eden? Longevity and? What happens to sinful people when everything is given to them and no work is required? What happens to people on earth today when everything is given to them and no work is required? What happens to people over time who are self-indulgent and lead hedonistic lives? What happens if such people live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years? What influence would such people have on their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, 900 years? Think of how many generations you could influence. Would altering the environment to make it harder to survive be a punishment and a cruelty for a sin, or rather a therapeutic intervention that would slow the corruption of human character? Have you ever heard that idle hands are the devil's workshop? Have you ever heard that useful labor is protective against sinful indulgence? The change in the ecosystem created a world that slowed the corruption of sin, protected human character, and opportunities for people to apply themselves in constructive ways. Secondly, the Eden-like conditions of the earth, uh, well, they permitted for that. And then the next reason is it resulted in the shortening of human lifespan. Shortening. From 900 years to... I'm not talking about a life, I'm talking about life. Okay, thank you. The shortening of human life from 900 years down to 120 years thus limited the pace of the spread of evil. As those who hardened, still hardened after the flood, many still hardened against God, but they could not corrupt as many generations by their direct influence. They were taken off the scene. And so there, imagine the corruption if we had Adolf Hitlers and Stalins and Pol Pots and Neros that lived 900 years. The shortening of human life was also a therapeutic intervention of mercy and grace. So the flood brought by God to, one, keep open avenue for Messiah, two, to shorten human life life to reduce the corrupting influence of those who harden against God. Three, to change the environment to make it harder to survive because idle hands are the devil's workshop and useful labor is protective to human character. I see a beautiful God who loves us so much that he doesn't leave us to our own devices, but he acts therapeutically, but he gets misunderstood and misrepresented. So I'll give you one metaphor and we got to close. We only got to, through Monday's lesson. There was some really good stuff, but this metaphor, imagine you're observing an ancient battlefield and on the ancient battlefield, you see evil people with swords killing and maiming, some cutting off arms and legs, 
But there are others on the battlefield, medical personnel on the battlefield. And, and this is a time before anesthesia. And, 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 and what you view, it looks to you like they're doing the same thing because they're grabbing people, they're holding them down. And while they're holding them down, the person's screaming and somebody is cutting off an arm or cutting off a leg. They're actually amputating that limb to save a life. Or they're cutting their abdomen open to, to heal a wound. But all you see are two groups of people out there with sharp instruments cutting off arms and legs and cutting open bellies. You would go, well, my doctor would never do stuff like that. That's how many people view the flood and these Old Testament actions on God's part because they don't understand the great controversy context and they don't understand the therapeutic action intended. God never is the source of death, people. He's always the source of life. Death comes out from sin. God never compels. He never coerces, as we read earlier. But he does use power therapeutically to restrain and to keep open avenue for Messiah and to create opportunities that enhance our, our opportunity for salvation. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your goodness, um, for your watch care, for the truth. And we ask for ever-increasing outpouring of your spirit of truth to help us see and discern the true battle going on behind the scenes and make us more effective in teaching these truths to others so that we can be reconciled to you, share this light around the world, and that you really may come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.